This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'm beginning a new series for the month of July that I've titled Final Curtain Call. In each episode this month, a film or theater actor is connected with a sensational crime. First up, in 1973, a horror film titled The Exorcist was released in theaters. Moviegoers around the world were shocked and fascinated by the graphic depiction of a little girl possessed by a demon. The film's director, William Friedkin, spared no expense to create realistic depictions of satanic possession, exorcisms, and graphic violence. But behind the scenes, one of the film's extras would confess to a real-life murder and be suspected of several more. This is the first chapter in the series, Final Curtain Call, Paul Bateson and The Exorcist. In December 1973, the film The Exorcist was released. The supernatural horror movie told the story of the demonic possession of Reagan, a 12-year-old girl, and two Catholic priests' attempts to release her from Satan's grasp through exorcism. Some scenes were so disturbing and graphic in nature for that era that moviegoers reported vomiting and fainting in theaters. In one scene, Reagan's mother, played by Ellen Burstyn, desperate to find a reason for the bizarre behavior exhibited by her child, allows her to undergo a medical procedure called cerebral angiography. Director William Friedkin wanted the medical scenes in the film to appear as realistic as possible, so while conducting research for the film, he observed one of these procedures being performed in the radiology lab of New York University Medical Center. Impressed by the lab's staff, Friedkin invited all of them to be extras in the movie. One of the extras was a radiology technician named Paul Bateson. Bateson is seen talking to Reagan and preparing for the medical procedure in the movie scene. His bedside manner induces a calming effect on the terrified child as he helps place her on the table and attaches wires to her shoulders. At that time, an angiography was performed by using a needle to puncture a patient's carotid artery in order to insert a catheter. A contrast agent was then injected into the vein in order to make blood vessels more visible under x-rays. Friedkin chose to depict this procedure as part of Reagan's ordeal because when the vein was pierced, it caused a very visible arterial blood spray that he wanted captured on film. This is still considered one of the most disturbing scenes in the movie. It is also praised as one of the most accurate and realistic medical scenes in a movie by medical professionals. Bateson's walk-on role in The Exorcist would not catapult him to Hollywood stardom, but Paul Bateson had demons of his own, which led him to commit an act of violence and, as a result, made him a prime suspect in a series of grisly murders. Paul Bateson was born in Pennsylvania in 1940. In the early 1960s, he joined the Army and was stationed in Germany. It was while serving in the military, Bateson would later say, that he became an alcoholic, quote, out of boredom. After returning home to Pennsylvania, Bateson quit drinking and took courses to become a radiology technician. He relocated to New York City 
and began a relationship with a man that lasted several years. While the couple enjoyed socializing in clubs and vacationing on Fire Island, their relationship was marked by excessive alcohol consumption, at least on Bateson's side, and we have already learned that he had a propensity to overindulge. Bateson's life was also marked by losses at this time when his brother died by suicide and his mother suffered a stroke. He lost both of his closest family members within the same year. Perhaps this caused his drinking to increase, because soon after, Bateson and his partner split. Bateson would later admit that this was in part as a result of heavy drinking. In 1970, Bateson moved to Borough Park, Brooklyn, commuting each day into the city to work at New York University Medical Center as a radiology technician. He was well-liked and respected by his colleagues. His direct superior in the radiology department, Dr. Barton, said of Bateson, he was the most experienced and he was the best. It was because of his common professional demeanor that he caught the eye of director William Friedkin in 1972 and became an extra in the highest-grossing horror movie of all time. The Exorcist was produced with a $12 million budget and made over $440 million at the box office. Not until the 2017 release of It did another R-rated horror film beat its record. The Exorcist also became the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. It was nominated for a total of 10 Academy Awards, taking home the top prize for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. William Peter Blatty, who wrote the 1971 book by the same name, also won a Golden Globe Award for Best Screenplay. Linda Blair won the Globe for Best Supporting Actress at the young age of 14, and as a result, became one of the most sought-after young actresses of the 1970s. Life after The Exorcist did not work out so well for Paul Bateson, however. Due to his excessive drinking, which affected his job performance, Bateson was fired from New York Med just two years after appearing in the film. After losing his job, he bounced around from one low-level job to another, cleaning apartments and selling tickets at a triple-X-rated movie theater. For a time, he attempted to quit drinking by attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. He also moved to Greenwich Village, where there was a thriving gay community forming at the time. Bateson would later say that he was looking for a new, long-term relationship. But he soon found himself drinking and drugging the nights away at a series of after-hour clubs that catered to a subculture of the gay community. Bars and clubs like The Mineshaft and The Anvil were described by patrons as meat markets, or leather bars, where men could meet up to drink, dance, and hook up for casual sex. The mid and late 1970s was the golden age of sex. Disco's single bars and clubs were like Disneyland for adults, especially in large metropolitan cities like New York City. More young people, gay and straight, in this pre-AIDS era, no longer felt inhibited about freely and casually engaging in sexual encounters with relative strangers. As a result, establishments that advertised an uninhibited good time flourished in New York and in Greenwich Village, where Paul Bateson spent most of his time, which catered to the gay community. By 1977, 37-year-old Paul Bateson was single, looking for love, and once again, his alcohol consumption was out of control. By this time, he was consuming over a quart of vodka a day. He was also underemployed and in need of cash. In contrast, 36-year-old Addison Verrill was doing very well for himself. A graduate of Princeton University, Verrill had spent time in the Peace Corps before becoming a journalist. He had been reporting on the film and entertainment industry for Variety for 10 years. Incidentally, Verrill had written a column on The Exorcist for the paper when the film was released a few years earlier. 
On the morning of September 14, 1977, Addison Verrill was found dead in his apartment located at 2 Horatio Street. He had been beaten and stabbed to death. Police found no sign of forced entry and noted that it appeared he'd had company at his apartment that night. Several empty beer cans and half-filled cocktail glasses were found at the scene. Although the apartment appeared to have been ransacked, nothing of value was taken. The investigation turned up witnesses who said they'd seen Verrill the evening prior at Badlands, a gay bar on Christopher Street. It was reported he left with another man, but the description of the stranger was too vague to be useful. The investigation into Verrill's murder ended practically before it began. At least one man took great offense at what appeared to be the brush-off of a gay man's murder by both the police and the media. Arthur Bell, a columnist for The Village Voice, was also a gay rights activist and founding member of the Gay Activist Alliance in New York City. He began his career with The Village Voice, writing about the Stonewall Rebellion of 1969. Sometimes referred to as the Stonewall Riots, these were a series of clashes between police and the gay community that began as a response to ongoing police raids of gay clubs in Greenwich Village. On the morning of June 28, 1969, patrons of the Stonewall Inn at 53 Christopher Street fought back against police when the raid turned violent. More protests erupted over the next few days. The Stonewall Rebellion is referred to as a watershed moment in the fight for LGBTQ rights in the United States. On the first anniversary of Stonewall, the first gay pride marches took place in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco, an annual event that celebrates and marks the beginning of the fight for gay rights to this day. Arthur Bell was a fierce advocate for gay rights and wrote about the lack of adequate response to investigating Addison Verrill's murder and that of at least half a dozen other gay men in the two years prior. Between 1975 and 1977, six bodies were found washed up on the shores of the Hudson River. The bodies had been dismembered, placed into garbage bags, and thrown into the river. Although they had not been identified, some clothing found with them and tattoos on body parts provided clues that the victims were homosexual men. Clothing articles were traced back to Greenwich Village shops that served the leather subculture. Tattoos also hinted at the men being members of the gay community. And yet none of these victims had been positively identified, and the police had no suspects. Now another gay man was also found murdered, and Arthur Bell could not abide by the fact that Verrill's murder would also go unavenged. He called out the media, the police, and the public in his column, quote, each year, there are approximately four sexually oriented murders of gay men in the Greenwich Village area, Bell wrote. Seldom do the papers report the crimes. Not all the killers are apprehended. Often witnesses are afraid to speak up because of their closeted status. He continued, quote, We're all aware that there are psychopaths roaming the New York streets. When they zero in on gay men, the sentiment often expressed is, they brought it upon themselves, end quote. Bell was correct in pointing out that crimes against gay men and women were rarely reported in the media. The bodies found in the bay were not only referred to in derogatory terms, which I shall not repeat here, but not even given the courtesy of a descriptive name. They were simply referred to as the Cuppy Murders, which stood for Circumstances Unknown Pending Police Investigation. Later, as we shall see, the murders were reinvestigated under the name The Bag Murders. 
A week after Addison Verrill was found murdered, and just a couple of days after Arthur Bell's article was printed in the Village Voice, Bell received a phone call. The man at the other end of the line told Bell he liked his story but said, quote, I'm not a psychopath. The man confessed to Bell that he had murdered Verrill. He said that they had met for the first time the evening before Verrill was killed at Badlands, a popular gay bar on Christopher Street. They had struck up a conversation, and Verrill offered to buy him a beer. He'd accepted. They had continued drinking and ended up at the club Mineshaft. Drugs were shared, the caller claimed, and the two men ended up at Verrill's apartment on Horatio Street. Early in the morning, they'd had sex. The caller said it was after sleeping together that Verrill expressed having no interest in an ongoing relationship. The caller said it was at that moment that he, quote, just snapped. He told Bell that he was angry because Verrill's interest, quote, hadn't been reciprocal. It wasn't just the sex that wasn't reciprocal, it was the soul too, he explained. I wanted a lasting thing, something that would go beyond sex into friendship, a lover or marriage. It was the rejection that triggered things. Something flared up in my head. I decided to do something I'd never done before, end quote. The caller said he'd taken a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and smashed Verrill over the head with it. He then opened the kitchen drawer and pulled out a large knife. He'd plunged it into the man's chest. After Verrill was dead, his murderer had stolen $57 in cash from his wallet, his master charge card, and his passport. He'd also taken some of Verrill's clothes before leaving the apartment. The caller said he'd used the stolen cash to purchase alcohol and spent the rest of the day drunk. After hearing the man's confession, Bell called the police and reported the call. It was the first lead investigators had about Verrill's murder, but the caller had given no solid clues as to his identity. Luckily, the next big break in the case came just a few hours later. Bell received a second phone call, this time from a man named Mitch. Mitch told Bell that an acquaintance of his named Paul Bateson had also called him and confessed to Addison Verrill's murder. Bateson was rounded up and arrested. He put up no resistance as he was handcuffed and taken in for questioning. Paul Bateson once had a happy relationship, a good job, and a promising future. Something had derailed all of it, and by his own account, drugs and alcohol played a large part in his downfall. Now a young man was dead, and Bateson was sitting in a police interrogation room. He immediately came clean and said yes, it was him who'd called journalist Arthur Bell and confessed to Verrill's murder. He gave the same details to the police that he detailed to Bell and even led investigators to Verrill's stolen passport and credit card. His trial began in 1979, and investigators, in the meantime, were also seeking out evidence to tie the bag murders to Bateson as well. They didn't have much to go on other than the fact that Bateson's victim was also a gay man. But there were reports that Bateson was actually bragging that he was responsible for the murders of the six dismembered men found in the Hudson River. A friend of Bateson's named Richard Ryan reported to police that while Bateson was awaiting trial, he'd confessed to him that he had killed and dismembered multiple men. Ryan met with prosecutor William Hoyt and said Bateson had told him, quote, killing is the easy part. Getting rid of the bodies is the hard part. He'd explained to him that he'd had to cut up the bodies, place the remains in plastic garbage bags, and dispose of them. Exorcist director William Friedkin 
had also visited Bateson while he was in jail. Friedkin reported that the former movie extra said he was thinking about confessing to all six murders in exchange for a reduced sentence. According to Friedkin, Bateson told him, quote, I remember killing this one guy. I cut him up and put his body parts in a plastic bag and threw it in the East River, end quote. Years later, Friedkin said in an interview that it was his belief Bateson was suspected of being the serial killer because at the bottom of the bags where the dismembered body parts were found, quote, in very small print that you can't even read, it said, Property of NYU Medical Center Neuropsychiatric Center, end quote. According to Friedkin, Bateson told him he only remembered killing the one man and dumping his body in the river, quote, but they want me to confess to another five or six, end quote. This conversation that Friedkin swears he had with Paul Bateson may be misremembered or a figment of his imagination. I could find no reports to corroborate that the bags found in the river had any such markings or identification. But Friedkin used this exchange with the accused murderer to get inspiration for another movie that he produced soon after. Titled Cruising, it starred Al Pacino as an NYPD officer who goes undercover to solve a series of murders of gay men who frequented bars in the West Village. The film was roundly panned and even protested by members of the gay community. Columnist Arthur Bell wrote a scathing review of the film, stating that the depiction of gays in cruising was filled with negative stereotypes and the plot line more than suggested that, quote, murder is the result of having gay sex, end quote. By the time of his trial, however, Bateson had recanted his initial confession and stated that he was not the man who had called Arthur Bell to confess. He pled not guilty. On March 5, 1979, Paul Bateson was found guilty of the murder of Addison Verrill and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was not charged with any of the other murders as the judge concluded that the prosecutor's case against the defendant was, quote, too ephemeral to have any connection to this case, end quote. Bateson continued to maintain his innocence of any of the murders, saying, quote, I am not the person described by Prosecutor Hoyt at all. I feel a great loss for Mr. Verrill, and I'm not at all the type of person as he described me, end quote. Paul Bateson spent more than 24 years behind bars and was released on parole on August 25, 2003, the day after his 63rd birthday. He dropped out of sight and his parole ended in 2008. According to records, he died in September of 2012. Columnist Arthur Bell died in 1984 at the age of 51 from complications arising from diabetes. As well as a longtime columnist for The Village Voice, Bell also wrote two books, Dancing the Gay Lib Blues, published in 1971, and Kings Don't Mean a Thing, published in 1978. The Bag Murders became a plot line in Season 2 of Mindhunter, when FBI agents Greg Smith and Wendy Carr interview Paul Bateson, played by Morgan Kelly, regarding his connection to these serial murders. The bag murders have never been solved, and the victims never identified. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Join me next week for another episode in the series, Final Curtain Call. You can interact with us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod, on Twitter at Upon a Crime, 
and TikTok at OUACpod. You can listen to episodes, learn more about the show and our sponsors, and shoot us a message as well as get all our social media links at our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Final audio editing and additional support for this episode was provided by Studio 71. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.